Colossians 1, verse 22 will be our text this afternoon. And it probably will be our text of next month as well, <laughs> because there's more I want to do um, and draw out. This is the word of the Lord, saints, give it your full attention. Yet, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Paul here is telling us, saints, that the reason why we have been reconciled to Christ is in order that we may be presented to the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Simply put, the reason why the Father saves us so that we can, so that we may be like the Father, that we may resemble the God who has saved us, that in this life, God is working on us to be holy and blameless. But before we even get to what God is doing, what we'll talk about this afternoon, in sanctification, we must first begin with justification. Because here Paul lays out what's called a twofold righteousness. That you, believer, have a twofold righteousness. You are righteous in Christ. You have a standing before God that's not of your own. But also in Christ, you are inherently, inwardly righteous. And that is what God is doing to you presently. In order for us to even speak about inherent righteousness, about us being righteous, and Reformed Christians do not like to talk about, it seems, our own righteousness. But saints of God, in a real way, you can say that you are pure in heart. You can say that you are wise. You can say that you are a good person. You can say that. You must say that. But we must first begin with the primary righteousness that we receive. That is to say this, saints. You cannot stand before God in your natural state. Apart from believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot stand before God. So how can I stand before God? We receive, then, a standing before God that's not of our own. It's Jesus Christ standing before God. This is what justification simply is, saints. Justification is that legal verdict where God bangs the gavel, right, as a judge, upon you and declares a sentence. Now, what's the sentence that he would declare upon you? Well, if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he declares upon you the same sentence he declares upon his son at the resurrection, 1 Timothy 3.16 says that Christ was vindicated at his resurrection, that he was justified as a res- at the resurrection, that he was publicly pronounced as just at the resurrection. Here's the beauty of the gospel saints, or one of the beauties is this. When you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that same verdict that was pronounced upon Christ over 2,000 years ago, you share in. You participate in that verdict. That is to say this, if you ever worry about, well, will I ever be unjustified? 
as much as good works as I do, will I ever be unjustified? Saints of God, in order for you to be unjustified, Christ must be unjustified. In order for the pronouncement of you that you are not righteous before God, God must first remove his pronouncement upon Christ, who is righteous. Okay? So that's first, you know, the primary righteousness that we receive. That's our standing, technically speaking, the formal cause of our being made right before God is Jesus Christ and none else. And praise the Lord for that. However, as beautiful as the doctrine of justification sounds, it does not come without objections. But mind you, saints, there's nothing new because every single doctrine that we hold to comes with objections. Every single thing. The doctrine of Trinity, an orthodox doctrine that we hold to. Who's the main opponent to that? Well, one of the main opponents, Muslims, who say that it's non-rational, doesn't make sense, right? Uh, Jehovah Witnesses. They say that it doesn't make sense. Therefore, I deny classic orthodoxy. So then, who objects to this beautiful doctrine? Who objects? Well, what we have then in the Roman Catholic tradition is simply this. Here's, here's one thing that they might tell you. They say, okay, that sounds beautiful, that you have a standing that's not of your own, that you stand in Christ. You are, you are justified because you receive what's called this imputation of righteousness. But you yourself are not righteous. Did you sin today? You say, yes, okay, then you're not righteous. Do you still do sinful things? Yes, I do. Then you're not righteous. So in the Roman Catholic system then, God does not declare someone to be just without them actually really inherently being righteous. He doesn't declare you holy, doesn't say, uh, brother or sister, or male or female, you are holy without you actually really being holy. This is why purgatory is in the system, right? Here's what our response would be. I talked about it last Sunday, but there's a twofold response. Number one, uh, whatever God says about us must be true. Whatever God says of us must be true, because God's not a liar. If God says that we are righteous in Christ, then we are righteous in Christ. That's one way in which we can counter that argument. Number two, another way is because by faith, right, we are so united to Christ, right, that is the, that is what, that is what causes this link between whatever Christ has is mine because I'm actually really united to him just as a marriage uh, husbands if you don't know this already here's news for you um, all of your possessions is your wife's possessions your food is your wife's food put it more simply whatever is Christ is ours we participate in that and here's the third one we'll talk about this afternoon None of the reform say that just because we receive Christ for righteousness, that we ourselves will never be holy. So when when the, when the reform talk about faith alone, you know you hear that right? Believe upon the Lord by faith alone. Um, the reform never excluded works though. The reform never said that your faith 
is not an isolation apart from this faith being formed by love. That faith looking like something. We all know that, right? That yes, you believe by faith. However, though, what type of faith, or rather, what does your faith look like? Do you look like someone who has faith? And this is what the Reformed meant by faith alone. That, yes, you believe upon the Lord by, by faith, but however, this faith, though, it, 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 it has, it brings alongside of it good works. Well, we'll talk about good works in a few weeks. Not today. Today we will talk about sanctification, saints. Sanctification. God declares us holy in Christ, and then also in this life, he makes us holy. That's sanctification. In this life, he makes us holy. And in the life that's to come, we will finally perfectly be holy. That's sanctification, saints. That's the process that we go to, which leads to glorification, which leads to deification, which leads to the beatific vision. That's the process that we are on. And the Reformed saints did not exclude that we ourselves must be holy. Because that's what God, or rather that's a part of salvation. Let me give you a few quotes. Francis Turretin. That word sanctification is used strictly for a real and internal renovation of man by which God delivers the man planted in Christ by faith and justified more and more from his native depravity and transforms him into his own image. Thus, with separation from the world and sin and consecration to the service of God implies a renovation of his nature. Pastor Antonio has been speaking of this. Pastor Antonio, in many ways, has been doing mighty sermons on sanctification. Right? In light of all of the all of the data that uh, he has blessed us with, that he has uh, gone through the work of, of trying to make us understand the book of Revelation. You know, 40,000 feet in the air. What's being screamed at us? Be holy. Do not succumb to the harlot's evil devices. Amen. Right? Amen. John Owen, sanctification is, the, is an immediate work of the Spirit of God of the, on the souls of believers purifying and cleansing them of their natures from the pollution of their uncleanness of sin, renewing in them the image of God, and thereby enabling them from a spiritual and habitual principle of grace to yield obedience unto God. So God changes our nature and then within us gives us, right, a principle by which we can do the work of God, which is what? God himself. We will get to there, okay? Stephen Charnock. It is a universal change of the whole man. It is a new creature. Not only a new property or new faculty. That is to say, not only you have new powers of soul. Right? This as well as creation extends to every part. Understanding, will, conscience, affections. All corrupted by sin. All renewed by grace. That is to say, sin affected you in such a way that your understanding... Your intellect, your will, that by which you love, your conscience, your affections, all corrupted by sin. And here he says, now they're all being renewed by grace. Inwardly being renewed by grace. And then I love this quote here. Grace sets up its, uh, grace sets up its ensigns in all parts of the soul. 
surveys every corner and triumphs over every lurking enemy. That is to say this, grace comes into your soul in such a way that it searches even the, even, even the, the, the tightest of corners where sin tries to hide and kills it and triumphs over it. Why? Because grace is greater than sin. Saints of God, that's what God is doing to you now. He has he is working in your soul in such a way that even the tightest, most darkest areas where sin thinks that it can hide, God is penetrating that area. He's getting inside there and removing all of the bad and 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 exchange for the good. Notice things, these three men speak of sanctification then. Countering the Roman Catholic change, uh, uh, objection that there is no change. No, reformed are saying there is a change. There is a change going on within us. Again, Francis Turretin says sanctification consists in a change and renovation of nature itself, by which depraved qualities and habits are cast out and good ones infused. Good ones infused. Now we have to ask: Is this renovation necessary? Is it necessary for us to be renewed right is it necessary for us to be like god why is it not enough for us to have a right standing before god without us undergoing this process of renovation why can't we just have a standing before god and in this lifetime live however we want essentially do what the harlot says calvin says justification and sanctification gifts of grace go together as if tied by an inseparable bond so that if anyone tries to separate them, he is, in a sense, separating Christ. Tearing Christ into pieces. Sanctification doesn't just flow from justification so that one produces the other. Both come from the same source. Christ justifies no one whom he does not also sanctify. In other words, this. God does, does not declare you righteous without also you also being in this life righteous. You don't receive Christ for a perfect standing. You also receive Christ in this life to be holy. No one is saved without also being holy. That's essentially what Calvin is saying. God doesn't declare someone righteous in Christ, but also in this life making them righteous. And we know this quite well, friends. How many of you know people who say that they're Christians, and then by their actions you say, hmm, are you really a Christian? Are you really a Christian, right? We say that about ourselves, too, after we sin or something like that, right? Am I really of the faith in light of me doing such wicked things? What we need to understand, then, about salvation, saints, is that God not only declares us righteous in Christ, but he makes us righteous in Christ. And here's the glorious comfort of the doctrine of sanctification. Here's the glorious comfort, saints, is that God is not going to leave us in our polluted, depraved depraved condition he's not going to leave us in our sinful condition he's not but in christ he will conform us to the image of jesus christ and he's not going to leave us right dirty internally but he's he will make us new and he is making us new i was going to say this for the end how many of you can even testify even right now of how how different you think compared to Whenever Christ saved you, before Christ saved you, 
just just how how different you 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 think you operate before Christ saved you. That is that is a testimony of God not leaving you to yourself. That's not salvation, saints. He saves us, and then with you, he changes you. He changes you. We may think then, saints, we may think, tend to think that our complete detachment from sin will come in this life, will come in the next life that's to come. You know, that in the, in the life that's to come, that's when we will finally be detached from all sin. And that is true to a certain, in the broad sense, but saints of God, we must not think that in this life, God is not detaching us from sin. That is to say, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to be detached from sin. God now is detaching you from sin. Right now. In other words, saints, the life of heaven doesn't begin when you die. And we, we must understand that, that the life of heaven does not begin when you die, but rather heaven is already indwelling within your souls. We'll talk about that in just a few moments, but heaven indwells in your souls. Heaven is already in you and will and will one day be finally fully realized. Heaven is in you in this way. Let me just let me just say it now. Heaven is in you because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell you. And here's the great thing about Christianity, saints, is that when you get to heaven and you see God, right, in that blessed vision, when your mind has been hyphened to know him, insofar as a creature can know him, your will's been inflamed to love him, insofar as a creature can love God, here's the great thing, is that you are beholding one who has lived in the bottom of your soul since he has saved you. So friends, to experience all that Christ is to us means that we are not only forgiven and accounted righteous in him, but we are actually made holy in him. If there's nothing else that you get from this sermon, it's simply this. Right now, currently, God is making you holy. God is making you holy, saints. When we speak of sanctification, then there's some misconceptions. Sanctification sometimes is thought of as our response to the saving work of Christ rather than an integral part of the saving work of Christ. In other words, saints, we often think that our holiness is rooted in our attempt to manifest our gratitude to God. Our holiness is our attempt to manifest our gratitude to God. Obey God, why? Out of gratitude. And that is true to a certain extent, but that's not the primary way in which we think about um, uh, sanctification. Rather, our holiness is the manifestation of our new life in Christ. It's what it means for us to be in Christ. Oftentimes, Christians say Christ saves us, and we respond to salvation in obedient gratitude, in obedience. And that is true to a certain extent. However, saints, we don't want to think that our holy living is paying God back for what he has done for us. That God, you have saved me, and now let me pay you back by living holy for you. That's not what sanctification is. And that's not how we are to think, saints, of our obedience to God, first and foremost. We don't pay God back by living holy. We don't pay God back by living holy. Rather, our holy living is what it means for us to be saved. We're not paying God back, but it's what it means for us 
to be saved. Therefore, sanctification is not merely a byproduct of salvation, but rather it is what it means to be saved. And many Christian saints miss this point. Many Christians believe that justification, us being declared right before God, that's the gospel. And then sanctification now is the Christian life. But saints of God, when you preach the gospel, you must also preach that you have to live holy unto God. We must not divorce holy living from the gospel of salvation. That repent, believe, now live. Live righteously unto God. In other words, there's no such thing as being, there's no such thing as being saved without also being sanctified. There is no gospel of forgiveness in Christ without a new and holy life in Christ. In other words, Christ didn't come only to give us a right standing before God, but he also came to make us like him. That's the gospel, saints. And the word of God is clear on this point. I'm just going to bombard you on just a a bunch of scripture texts. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Again, through the sanctifying word of the Spirit. Colossians 2.11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Colossians 3.1, Since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts. Amen. The in, your, that which is in you. Your hearts on the things above. Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, uh, Hebrews 10.14, for by one sacrifice he was made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And in Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If there's anything that the scriptures are clear on, saints, it's this. That God saves you and then renovates you. He takes out all of that bad furniture and places new furniture in there. Changes you, saints. Actually really changes you. Works on your soul. Now then, we have to ask, how does this new life come about? What does God do to us then? Does he give us, you know, a... A book that says 10 steps to being holy. (laughs) Does he give us something like that? Does he give us an MP3 audio of, you know, a million sermons to listen to? And then after we've listened to them, then we have mastered the art of being holy. Is that what he does? No, this is what he does. God actually comes inside of you. God comes inside of you. That's how he makes you holy. Saints of God, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77, asks this. What's the difference between sanctification and justification? It says this. Although sanctification be inseparably joined to justification, yet they differ. There's a difference. In that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace. And the enable to the exercise thereof. That is to say, in sanctification, in God changing you, he infuses, another word, mean he pours into your soul grace, 
right now, right now, God is pouring into your soul grace. The priest's word is called a means of grace. So God is pouring into your soul grace. This is why it's so important for us to do whatever we have to do in order for us to be alert, to be aware when the preached word's going forth. Why? Because something is happening right now that you don't receive, I just got back, from Disneyland. You don't receive, you know, at your favorite restaurant. What do you receive? God changing you. You receive him. That's what happens during the preached word. That's what happens during prayer. Through the sacraments. He infuses, pours into our souls grace. And saints of God, here I'm going to argue for the rest of our time. When God pours into our souls grace and sanctification, essentially what he's doing is this. He's pouring himself. This is what I'm going to argue for the rest of our time together. That in order for us to... The way God makes us holy is by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwelling us. That's how he makes us holy. Right now, and this is not a mystery, I mean, it's a mystery, but not like in the sense of it's, it's, um, it's, it's, you can't, you can't really believe it. It's not a fairy tale. But saints of God, just contemplate this when you have time. That the Father, that the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in you. So when you're a child and say, they said that Jesus lives in your heart, you might have been saved and it might have been true. But there is some truth to Jesus living in our hearts. There is. And when Jesus is there, the Father's there. And when the Father's there, the Spirit is there as well. When you get time, contemplate on the Holy Trinity is living inside of me. So then how does God change us? Simply by indwelling us. Athanasian says, when the Spirit is in us, the Word also, who gives the Spirit, is in us. And in the Word is the Father. We love, I mean, we we could have gone, we could have talked about the Holy Spirit and his role of sanctification. And we can do that. But here, I want to talk about how the Holy Trinity and dwells us. Um, John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our indwelling with him. If anyone loves me, I and my Father, as well as the Spirit, will come and we will make our indwelling with them. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, saints, really indwell us. God is present in everything that's created by either his presence or power. However, though, when it comes to Christians, he's present in a unique way. How is he present? He's present by grace. He's present by grace. God is present to us, to our soul, in a unique, special way. God is present to us by grace, and this presence of the Holy Trinity indwelling us is the primary gift of God's grace. What's the highest gift that God gives to man? It's himself. What's the highest um, enjoyment of, of man? God himself. All answers lead to God. But we must ask, congregation, how do we know? How do we know that the Holy Trinity dwells within us? How do we know this? 
How do we know that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell us? Stay with me here. Thomas Aquinas says, it's not enough for the creature to have a new relation to God or whatever sort. In other words, this. Yeah, God is present to every all creation by presence and power. But if he's present to us by grace, so what? So what? He then says, there must be some way by which the soul is drawn into the Holy Spirit himself as possessed. Because what is given to someone is possessed by him. Insofar as the divine person himself, by impressing his seal on our souls, grants us certain gifts by which we were formerly enjoy the person, namely love and wisdom. In light of all of that beautiful jargon, Thomas is really saying this. That is not enough for the Holy Spirit to indwell us unless the Holy Spirit actually does something to us. Unless that we, were, that we actually are possessed by the Holy Spirit. Possessed by the Son, possessed by the Father. Again, yes, we have a new relation to God by grace, but if he's just there chilling, then what's the point? Right? He must do something to us. So Thomas then uses the analogy of a seal. Of a seal. Uh, think of, you know, you have a you have a seal and you put it on an envelope, right? A wax seal, right? What's happening there is that seal is impressing its likeness upon the um, envelope or whatever, right? This is what's happening, saints, when the Holy, when the, when the Holy Trinity indwells us. Just as when you take a stamp and impresses its seal upon the paper, the Holy Trinity comes in us and impresses a seal of their presence upon our souls. Now, what's that seal? How do we know? What's the stamp? What, what's the what's the not leaving mark because the whole, they don't leave us? But what what's that? What's that that shows us? Hey, um, you know I'm living here, right? What is it? Essentially, is this faith, hope, and love? Faith, saints, we. We um, we uh, attribute to the Son, and hope and love we attribute to the Holy Spirit. Now, why faith, hope, and love? Why why faith, hope, and love though? Because it is faith, hope, and love that works on your soul. Just really quickly, your soul is what is what energizes you, right? And there are two operations of your soul essentially: your intellect and your will. Those are the things that separate you from the very chair that you're sitting on, the very the very pin that you're using, the very book that's in front of you. You have an intellect and your will. Those are the two highest powers, right? And God says it is those two highest powers, right, that bear my image, that have been scarred by Adam, that I'm going to work on. How am I going to work on them? I'm going to operate on them by which I will come and live inside the believer. Amen. See, isn't God doesn't give us a, again? This is this is so beautiful, saints, because God again does not give us twelve steps to being holy. He says, "I'm going to come in you." Amen. The Father sent His Son and became like us, and then in the and then in the further, then He sends His Spirit, right? And with the Spirit, we get all of them. We don't just get one. Yes. 
We get the Son and we get the Father. We can say that through grace, technically speaking, sanctifying grace, the Son and the Spirit really indwell the believers and press their soul on the very likeness. I'm going to speak about, just quickly, the Son and the Spirit. You might say, well, what about the Father? Well, because the Father's not sent. But wherever the, wherever the Son and the Spirit's at, the Father's at too. So he's there. He's there. Okay? Before we, before we end, let's just consider... What is the seal of the eternal son that he presses on your soul? How do you know that the son lives inside of you? Right now, right now, 1.40 p.m. Sunday, March 12, 2023, how do I know that the son lives in me right now? Do you have faith? Yes, the son lives in you. Amen. That's it. Amen. Do you have faith? Do you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. The Son lives in you. Really and truly, yes. Faith is the the divine Son's seal upon our souls so that we know that he is present. Now, why faith? What's the connection between faith and the eternal Son of God? Well, remember, John 1, the Word of God says that in the beginning, the Word, it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the eternal Son is the Word of God. Okay, stick with me here. He is the word of God. He is, in an analogous way, the word that best describes the father. So if I was to ask you, um, Lucy, you're looking at me. Sorry, sister. If I was to say, Lucy, just, you know, give me one word that best encapsulates all that you are. She can't do it because whatever word she says, there's something that she might think of as well, that best describes her as well. Even yourself, you can say, well, I'm loving, but I'm also this. I'm also this. I'm also this. When we talk about the sun, though, right, the sun is the very best expression without remainder of the father. So if the father, in an analogous way, is an intellect, he conceives of a word And when that word is conceived, it's the Son. It's the Son. Remember Hebrews 1.3. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is the image of the Father. Right? He is the perfect image of the Father without there being anything lacking in him. The only thing is he's just not father. But Jesus Christ is the very image of the father. So what we have then, saints, is this connection between faith and the eternal son being the word is simply this. Since the eternal son comes from the father, in an analogous way, a word comes from the intellect. We can say that the son impresses upon our soul faith. Why? Because faith works on the intellect. Faith is an operation of the intellect. Okay, faith is an operation of the intellect. And if Jesus Christ is the word that comes forth from the mind of the father. Then he impresses his very likeness upon us, which is faith. Faith, then, is the fruit of the son's indwelling within us. Faith is not a subjective feeling, but faith is knowing and believing the truth. Faith, as again, is an operation of our minds, 
we have to believe in something, then faith then, saints, bestows upon us a higher light, a new and higher light within our minds, so that we can know and believe God. Why couldn't you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ prior to faith? Because your mind was darkened. What did you need? You need your mind to be raised beyond its natural mode of being. Beyond a supernatural mode of being so that you can believe what? Supernatural truths. In other words, this thing. You can believe that a, a baby comes from a virgin. That's a supernatural truth. You can believe, saints, that a man who is God, mind you, another supernatural truth, walked on water, raised people from the dead, and came out the tomb three days later. A supernatural truth. The natural man cannot believe these things. So what happens then? Christ comes to you, right? Heightens your mind. So you can believe beyond and know beyond what's black and white. You can see the truth for what it is. You can hear the proposition of the gospel. And rather than saying, that's not something that I think is, you know, great. You run to Christ. You say, that is the truth there. That yes, I am sinful. I need to believe upon Christ. That is a truth that is right and true. Because what's the one thing, saints? That we as humans cannot accept that we have done anything bad. That we have done anything bad. It's hard for us to accept that when someone tells you that you know you're actually a lot worse than you think you are. You're actually a lot sinful than you think you are. You're actually really, really bad. (laughs) Really bad. None of us want to hear that. But what Christ does is he says, by coming into our souls, we say, rather, yes, that is truth. So faith, then, is illumination. And we can credit this gift of faith and understanding to the Son because he indwells us. He works on our minds. He works on our minds. Saints of God, this was the mission of the Son when he came to earth. We can call this the the visible mission of the Son. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. John 1, 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming to the world. Again, because of Adam's sin, we are darkened and ignorant of God's truth. But God gives us faith and works on us. He heightens our minds, bestows upon us a new light. And saints of God, this is one of the ways God by grace sanctifies us. He says, I will, I will sanctify my people by coming inside my people. I will live with them. Saints, this is so, in light of much of the technicalities of this, this is so practical, saints. So practical. Because, saints of God, think of all the lies the world tells us. Think of all the lies that we read, that we see. As soon as we walk out of here, well, not necessarily here, but when we get onto the road and all that, you see a billboards, you get on your phones, you're going to see a number of lies. A number of lies. How do we know that they're lies, though? Well, saints of God, without the sons indwelling us, without the gift of wisdom, without the gift of faith, how do we know that 
what the world is telling us is true or false. As Pastor Antonio has been telling us, speaking about the harlot and how she tries to deceive us by looking at sin as supreme pleasure and joy. This is not what the harlot does. says, you know, if you leave me, you may not ever taste me ever again. If you, if you depart from me, I may never come to you again. Are you willing to forfeit all of this pleasure? That's what the harlot says and saints. Without the sun's indwelling us, without the sun raising our minds to see sin the way God sees sin, then we have no hope. We have no hope. We will fall to the harlot's deception every single time. Because we cannot decipher what's true and what's false. Because in our twisted minds, saints, we think what is false is true. We think what is wrong is actually right. That's why the sun has to come and dwell in our minds. Right, saints? St. Paul tells us in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. And the sun indwelling our souls, how such mind is renewed. God is currently renewing our minds. Why, saints? Simply this, so that we don't think the world's thoughts after them, but we think God's thoughts, Amen. not the world's thoughts. The Holy Spirit, uh, this is very hard. But the Holy Spirit proceeds, okay? He comes forth from the Father and the Son by way of love. So think of this. You, you, you conceive of this perfect image of, you know, what, of yourself, right? This perfect word of yourself. And then what happens? You love it. It's just like, like a painter. A painter in their mind thinks of the painting. They put it on canvas. They look back or step back and they love what they created. The Holy Spirit then proceeds from the Father and the Son by way of love, okay? And this procession then, or this coming forth, is according to the will, okay? According to the will, which is essentially hope and love. Romans 5, 5, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. What is the seal then, saints, of the Holy Spirit? How do we know that the Holy Spirit indwells us? How do we know? We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, maybe we'll do that. But essentially it's this, hope and love. Hope and love. Do you hope in God? Then the Holy Spirit indwells you. Do you love God? The Holy Spirit indwells you. Because of Adam's sin, we have inherited egoism and malice. We desire our own will above others and we love ourselves above others. And what the gift of hope does, saints, is that it raises our will so that we can place our trust entirely upon God. Saints of God, in your own life, if not for the theological virtue of hope, where would you be? I say this, like, look at all the things that have happened in your life. You go to a doctor, you get a bad report, you look at the world and what's going on and how it's shaping. If you don't have the virtue of hope, oh, how much would we be in despair? How much would we, we be in despair? Saints of God, let me tell you this. God gives us this virtue of hope so that we will not succumb to despair like the pagan and atheists. The atheists can despair. They have every right to despair because they have no hope. We have a hope. 
And God roots that and plants that into our hearts. Love also then purifies our will so that we can cease to love the things of the world and love God and love neighbor. The mission of the Holy Spirit, the invisible mission rather, is to inflame the will of believers to love God and to do the will of God. That's essentially what the Holy Spirit does. With it. It's to love God and do what God says. And hold, man, do we need help with that, do we not? How many of us need help just to love God and then also to live properly unto God? God says, I will help you with that. Again, not by giving you X, Y, and Z, but giving you the third person of the Trinity. How do we cease then loving the world? How do we cease from doing the will of the world? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Saints, in closing... God is so good, is he not? Yes. He is so, so, so good. He's, I don't think this is the word, he is, he is gooder than we can ever imagine. The Father sends his Son to save us. Already out of this world, right? Doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then he says, I'm not going to leave you by yourself, though. Just as Christ had... His closest companion, which was the Holy Spirit, he says, I will come and indwell in you. Because of that visible mission of the eternal Son, we receive a righteousness not of our own. God doesn't stop there. He says, I will actually and really come in you so that you yourself will be righteous. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, you shall be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, isn't that a very daunting command? You shall be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. To the natural man, that is impossible. Mm-hmm. To us, it's not. Amen. Amen. And here's the great thing, saints. Here's the good news. God gives to us what he commands. He commands perfection. And he gives us perfection in the giving of his very self to us. Amen. Saints of God... How does God change us? He changes us by indwelling us. Simply put, right now you are being changed into the likeness of God. You have already received new operations. You already received what's called new habits of soul. You receive the theological virtues, which you cannot you cannot earn. But God gives you uh, out of his sheer love and grace. You have faith, hope, and love. Now what you do now is you live in light of them. Continue to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to love God above all else and love neighbor, but also continue to hope in God. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to talk about good works and the role of good works in the Christian life. Because the Reformed are they're, they're not shy to talk about good works is actually necessary for salvation. Because they testify to the God who dwells within us. Lastly, in closing, saints, where does this all lead to? You say, Pastor, I'm on this road of being detached from the world and all that I am that is sinful, being made into the likeness of God. Where does this lead to? What's the great goal and end for me? The telos of man is found in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we'll close with this. We are children of God. Now we are children of God. And he has not appeared, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. 
we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. This is the destiny of man. You will be like God. You will be perfect. That when in heaven, they they say, all those who are there, stand up if you're perfect. You can stand up. You can stand up. Because you will be like God one day. Let's pray, saints.